Ladies and gentlemen, our next speaker, Mr. Joseph Hallow, served as a court reporter in the U.S. military war crimes trials at Dachau, Germany, in the aftermath of the Second World War. This afternoon, he will talk about that experience, supplemented by information from official records of those same trials that he found many years later at the National Archives here in Washington. Our next speaker completed elementary and high school in Altoona, Pennsylvania. He entered U.S. military service in 1945, and at the age of 18 was sent to China, where he served for a time on General Marshall's staff in Beijing. After a short stint at the Pentagon and an honorable discharge, he went to Germany, where he served in 1947, as mentioned, as a court reporter at the Dachau War Crimes Trials. He was the youngest U.S. War Department civilian employee in the European theater. While working full-time, he attended classes in the evening at George Washington University here in Washington, D.C., from where he graduated with distinction and was elected to Phi Beta Kappa. For eight and a half years, he worked here in this city for an import-export firm, and then for ten and a half years, he served as executive vice president of a trade association representing Midwest wheat farmers. He supervised the Washington, D.C. office and several overseas offices and maintained good ties with the Department of Agriculture and Capitol Hill legislators and staff. He also wrote and published a weekly newsletter and a bi-monthly magazine, The Great Plainsman. Our next speaker also worked for 11 years as executive director of the North American Export Grain Association, a trade organization representing the main U.S. grain exporters. Mr. Hallow is the author of numerous articles on agricultural affairs that have appeared in trade and general circulation periodicals. He has been a welcome guest lecturer in university classes on agriculture. Our next speaker is the author of U.S. Grain, The Political Commodity, a book published earlier this year by University Press of America. His second book, which will deal with his experiences as a war crimes trial reporter, will be entitled Innocent at Dachau. It is now being prepared for publication by the Institute for Historical Review and will appear in the new year. A German edition is also scheduled for publication in 1991. Before he submitted his manuscript to the IHR for publication, Mr. Hallow sent it to other publishers who rejected it. The Macmillan Company of New York, for example, responded with a short letter that concluded with this sentence, quote, while it is interesting to read of your experiences as a court reporter, the persistence of your view that many of these defendants should have been exonerated stretches the credibility of your readers, unquote. <laughs> well, it may be nitpicking, but it is unfortunate that an editor for one of the country's most prestigious publishing firms apparently does not know the difference between the words credibility and credulity. But happily for us, Macmillan's loss is the IHR's gain. An essay article by our next speaker, also entitled Innocent at Dachau, appeared in the winter 1989-90 issue of the Journal of Historical Review. Mr. Hallow is currently working on a novel that will deal with morality. When he told his younger son that he is working on a novel about sin and forgiveness, the son asked, on which aspect do you profess proficiency? <laughs> Mr. Hallow speaks fluent Spanish, German, and Arabic. His hobbies are reading, tennis, music, and gardening. He and his wife, whom we are also pleased to welcome here this weekend, live here in uh, suburban Washington, D.C. They have three grown-up children. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Mr. Joseph Hallow.
Thank you, Mark. I hadn't really expected all that, but I guess I furnished him the material. I should expect that he would repeat it. <laughs> I, uh, it seems odd to me to be here to speak on the subject uh, of a concentration camp trial, concentration camp trials in Dachau, when uh, most people don't really know that there were any concentration camp trials in Dachau. I think most people have heard of the concentration camp trials in Nuremberg, but uh, although they meant a lot to me, I think people don't seem to uh, have paid any attention. I think a lot of people seem to know that we had trials on the concentration camps, various concentration camps, but they most of them feel that they probably took place in Nuremberg, or actually they took, took place in Dachau. I participated in the Dachau war crimes trials, and I went to Germany in 1946, the end of 1946. I worked there in 1947, and I came back to the U.S. before I was 21. I was 19 when I went over there. But this presentation and my being here with you today wouldn't have taken place if not been for a series of circumstances. Can you hear me? Yeah. Very well. Which took place in uh, 1945, and without which, of course, I never would have even left up to I suppose. But in 1945, when I, in August of 1945, August 20th, I turned 18 and was then required, of course, to register for the draft. <laughs> I had wanted to go into the Army earlier, but my parents wasn't here. But my eldest brother, George, was killed in the war against Germany in Italy. Actually, he was killed in Italy <coughs> fighting Germans. And uh, this tragedy was so devastating to our home that my parents, my mother actually never really got over it. You know, she was absolutely responsible. <laughs> She said that had George uh, enlisted in the service and she had given him permission to enlist, she would have felt that she had signed his death warrant. So I mean, I got the message, I mean, don't ask. And I, didn't. I waited till I was 18, but then I asked for immediate induction. And this was five days after the war with Japan was over. And I was inducted, I guess, for the Army, it was immediate, but I didn't come in until October 23rd. But still, the fact that I was inducted immediately, you know, period for immediate production, meant that I was still considered a veteran of World War II, although the war was officially over, you know, at the time. And I was subject to discharge criteria as a World War II veteran, and so I had a fairly short military career, and I had experiences in two of the most uh, outstanding world events that I personally had experienced. The first one of these was the uh, General Marshall. I worked with General Marshall's staff in China, in the efforts to try to bring about a reconciliation between the Chinese nationalists and the Chinese communists. Of course, this didn't take place. I mean, the reconciliation didn't take place, but I was there. And when I came back to the Pentagon, I expected to get another interesting assignment, but I was signed to the Pentagon to a job where I had absolutely nothing to do. And I was bored to death. I mean, so bored that I used to run up the down, up the down escalation, down the up escalation for something to do, and I wandered all over the building. I saw, a, I wanted to go overseas, but they wouldn't let me go. They said they couldn't find a replacement, so I wasn't released. But I found an office, a civilian personnel office, that was, you know, an overseas branch. And I went in there, and just out of boredom, I placed an application with them and took a test in shorthand typing, and uh, I thought they probably would have forgotten it or lost it or gotten lost in their files. But they didn't lose it. And two days after, I was discharged on December 2nd, 1946. I was asked to come to Washington to sign the agreement which would take me then to New York on December 5th. We sailed on the Marine Angel on December the 11th and arrived in Bremerhaven, Germany on the 21st. Nothing I could have imagined would have prepared me for the shock when I first got to Germany. 
I had never been exposed to a war, ever, and never been fairly close to a war, and I was not prepared for the sight of the bombed-out buildings in Germany. I mean, this was a year and a half after the end of the war, and block after block of the main cities in Germany had been absolutely devastated. I mean, you'd see a part of a wall standing and a lot of rubble. The roofs of the buildings and the walls were lying on the floor, the ground, and massive bricks, and out on the streets. I don't know how the uh, cars moved in the traffic because, you know, it really wasn't easy. There was a lot to try to get by. But I guess there were very few cars anyway and certainly very very little uh, fuel to, mo you know, motor them or to power them. As a result, uh, but this also, it's an, the situation lasted for three full years after the war was over. On top of that, then, the winter of 1946-47 was one of the coldest Germany had had for I don't know how long, I mean, quite a long time. But we didn't ha it seemed terribly cold to me because we didn't have enough fuel. Living was not too bad for the Americans. I mean, you know, we had plenty to eat and stuff, but we had clothing. We could have, I guess, from home, we could have had clothing. But uh, we were cold all the time. In contrast to that, I mean, I couldn't help but wonder how the Germans managed that year, that winter. As a matter of fact, with no fuel whatever and uh, relatively little to eat. I mean, the forests were cleaned. I mean, I would imagine someone had taken very good care of them. There wasn't a scrap of wood anywhere lying on the ground or a twig or anything else which the Germans hadn't picked up and burned. But I wondered what the people of the cities had done. I mean, where they worked. I mean, what they could have done with the worthless money that they got to the fort. I mean, they couldn't have bought anything. There wasn't a grocery store open anywhere. I mean, there were some stands open. You could have bought possibly potatoes and some vegetables. But during the entire time I was in Germany, I never once saw German sausage or any of the type of vegetables that Germans, or, you know, food Germans eat. Never any meats, never any of the, uh, you know, delicacies that they had touched. There wasn't any of that available. How they managed, I still will never know. But in any event, I mean, when I finally got to Germany, I had been tested as a pretrial reporter in Washington. I was going to be do pretrial investigations of war crimes, but when I got there, that work was already finished, and there was no pretrial work to be done. And as a result, after some changes and assignments different places, within about three months, I wound up in Dachau, where I was then actually asked to serve as an official court reporter. But in order to do so, I had to pass a test, and this test consisted of my sitting through a trial so that I could get the feel of it, you know, understand what the procedures were, and you know, understand essentially what the trials were, and you know, how the courts were run. And then, during that time, I was supposed to record and transcribe one take, one official session of the court, so that they would know whether or not I was competent to handle it. The uh, court trial that I sat in on first was an isolated atrocity case, and it turned out to be a bigger test of my own ability than I could have imagined. I didn't have any trouble with the shorthand speed. I sat in there and I actually transcribed, I took it. I had no problem with it, but I think I had a lot of trouble emotionally with the case and it shook me up terribly. There were several accused in there and uh, one of them was a very young man who was even younger than I was. He was six months younger than I was and I was still the youngest, I mean the youngest one obviously in the courtroom, although he was younger. I mean the youngest American in the courtroom. and. Uh, the, there was no question of the guilt or innocence of the men involved. In fact, that, you know, although they told different stories, they essentially did admit their guilt, and the witnesses testified as to their guilt. This young boy, Rudolf Merkel, was on trial for having hit the flyer two times with a stick. And he did this on the instigation of his neighbors and his boss, who was also on trial. A Wendell and Krieg was the boss. His boss and the Wendell and Krieg had handed him a stick and told him to beat the flyer, and Rudolf Merkel had beat him. And uh, at the time he beat him, he didn't even know if he was alive or dead. But uh, because of his age, 
and because of my age, obviously, we identified fairly strongly with one another, and he kept watching me throughout the trial, and I kept watching him. I mean, every time I looked over his way, his eyes were fixed on me, and vice versa. And uh, the trial was actually very grim. The testimony was very grisly. They, they described the beatings of the men, and uh, they were pretty awful. I mean, the men called for help. One of them you know, was reported to have called for help, and I can't imagine anything as desolate as calling for help and not getting any response. Actually, nobody helped them. And they had three men particularly who beat them so savagely, one of them with a wrench, and uh, the people, the, the soldiers finally died. I mean, the flying airmen died. And yet, you know, when you stop and think of it, you cannot help also but feel the anguish of the Germans. Because for them, the Americans were killing their people. I mean, you know, they were flyers, of course, and they had been bombing. And then this was an air raid over Baden-Baden and the area surrounding Baden-Baden. And they had been killing people, destroying property, just, you know, killing friends and neighbors, as a matter of fact. And, uh, you know, and they were caught up in the heat of the moment. And I can't imagine that, frankly, that I would have done any, behaved any differently had it happened to me, even in Altoona. But anyway, I mean, the trial progressed for two weeks, which is a fairly long time for an isolated flyer case. And uh, at the end of the two weeks, they all got fairly severe sentences. I had hoped that Rudolf Merkel would have been released or actually gotten a life sentence, but he was sentenced to life imprisonment. And the only thing they had against him was that he hit him twice with a stick. And he broke down and he started to cry in court. And I was so shaken up by it that I almost started to cry too. And I had to turn around, I mean, so that nobody could see it. I mean, I didn't even want to watch the accused. And tears were coming down my cheeks, and I actually almost broke out in sobs. But, I mean, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't control myself, as a matter of fact. But, you know, after the trial was over then, I composed myself, and uh, I went back, handed in my, uh, I transcribed the take and handed it in, and after he checked it, he told me he thought it was quite good. He told me I'd be, you know, I'd passed the test, essentially. But I told him I didn't think I could do any trial reporting at all. I said, you know, even though I might have the speed, I don't think I have the stomach to be a reporter. And she didn't say anything. But I mean, I sat around that for three days, and I realized finally that I didn't really have a choice. I mean, I was there under contract, and I didn't really know what to do. I'd only been there three months. It was a two-year contract. And I finally came back and told him that I, you know, would report then. He said, fine. He then assigned me to various courts. And uh, after having passed that baptism of fire, I sat through a lot of trials and heard a lot of testimony, and I, you know, was able to handle it as well. But, I mean, there never was another accused as young as Rudolf Merkel. In fact, he was the youngest prisoner they had at Landsberg. So they uh, you know, imprisoned the uh, criminals they tried, so-called criminals they tried in Dachau. We had in Dachau two different kinds of cases. You know, we had the isolated atrocity cases, of which one of them, I think most of you probably have heard of the Mamadi case, which became quite famous. And, uh, or actually, I should say infamous, is <laughs> But then the other was the concentration camp cases. We had the main concentration camp cases, which were the uh, parent cases, parent concentration camp cases, and one of these was going on all the time when I was there. But on that, they put the more seasoned, the older reporters, the ones, you know, not young like I was. And I had a lot of uh, the subsidiary concentration camp cases, you know, which I worked on. And uh, until the end, when I was finally put on the parent Nordhausen case, which also was an extremely interesting case for me. But the trials always bothered me. I mean, not like they had, not like the first one had, but they bothered me for various reasons. And not the least of which, of course, was the fact that a lot of the witnesses were professionals. I mean, I don't know if you've heard of professional witnesses, but I mean, I showed my, the copy of my uh, testimony, my, not testimony, my manuscript, excuse me, manuscript to an attorney friend of mine, and she was surprised that we had had professional witnesses. 
the professional witnesses in Dachau were those who worked there, actually. They testified. They were paid a certain salary per day every day that they were there. And they were also provided housing and provided food. As a result, I mean, they lived fairly well in a Germany which didn't have that to offer. I mean, they couldn't have found good housing, and they also couldn't have found decent food. And so that they lived fairly well. And some of them testified for months. Every concentration camp came up. I mean, they would volunteer. And uh, it was fairly easy to get them to say anything. In fact, one of my neighbors, who was one of the investigators, said he had been turned off by them because one of them came up to him and said, what would you like me to say in court? And he said, well, he said, I'd like you to tell the truth. And the guy says, well, he said, you know, I can say anything I want to. He said, what would you like me to say? And he said, the truth. And this guy just, you know, seemed puzzled. He couldn't, you know, quite get over it. You know, he, apparently he didn't understand what the word truth meant. But anyway, the uh, professional witnesses were testified, and their testimony, oddly enough, was accepted, even when it was obvious that they were lying. In some instances, their testimony showed tremendous discrepancies and was very inconsistent, but I mean, the courts never threw them out. Now, only one time was I in court when one of them was reprimanded. I'll tell you about that in a moment, anyway. One of them was reprimanded for having been so fresh in court. He was very imperious and, you know, uh, uh, demanding and sarcastic, and the court called him up before the bench and told him that, you know, in the court he was there, you know, their pleasure, and he was up to give answers to the questions and so forth. But, I mean, the witnesses, these professional witnesses, all generally testified pretty much the same. They all generally said that the prisoners, or the accused Germans, had been brutal beaters of men. In fact, so brutal that many of the people they had beaten had died. One witness, who, uh, I've got their names here as a matter of fact, but one witness, uh, I've got his name here, Herbert Melching, said that he had seen a witness, uh, one of the accused, beating so many men that, you know, that they, he was sure that some of them had died. He never had seen any of them die, and he was asked how he was sure that they had died, and he said, well, they were beaten pretty hard. And, uh, but he also stated, he admitted, that he had never seen the bodies, either in photographs or in person, of any of the people who had been seen beaten who had died. Another witness, a Blymuller, uh, named Blymuller, testified that one of the accused, a Franz Kofler, would come to the Jewish block in this, uh, this was in Mauthausen, would come to the Jewish block once a week regularly and just beat the Jews, as a matter of fact. And uh, this Blymuller never did, he said, oh, also, he said that the Jews never lasted more than three days. And what, he never was asked why he had lasted or how he had survived, and he never volunteered to tell them either. Uh, another one, another witness named Raiko Knezevi testified that a Spanish capo, we had a case in which four Spaniards were on trial, and that they were capos, and one of these capos, he said, had beaten a man named Drago so severely that the man had died. What Knezevi apparently didn't know, and no one seemed to pay much attention to in court at the time, was that Lariano Navas, the man whom he said had beaten the man so severely, had a crippled right arm, and he couldn't have beat anyone or anything, as a matter of fact, and this was later acknowledged by the U.S. government, and uh, by the man was eventually released after years, I mean, in prison. Another man, in other instances, you know, the witnesses produced statements of fantasies, as a matter of fact. One was named Moses Meschel, who said that he was picked up by his ear. Someone had picked him up by his ear and had flung him to the floor, out by the ear, had flung him to the floor so hard, he fell on that ear, on the same ear, and he's had loss of hearing ever since, as a matter of fact. 
Another witness indicated that an accused had struck a girl with a club so severely that he knocked all her brains out and her brains were lying there on the floor in front of her and that the guy had to call someone, an orderly or someone to clean up, you know, the, the, the brains which were lying there on the floor. Another one, a witness, Goda, was so confused about testimony he was giving that uh, he couldn't really identify the dates and he changed them, kept changing. And finally, at the review authority who saw it, apparently could not ignore it, uh, acqu uh, not acquitted, but commuted the sentence of the man who was sentenced to uh, hang uh, for the crimes that, uh, that uh, Goda had uh, alleged to him. He was finally, uh, the sentence was commuted to life imprisonment and the man was eventually released from prison. And in some instances, the accused didn't even know the accused, I mean, the witnesses did not even know the accused against whom they were testifying. I mean, we had a series of eight witnesses come into a court in a Franz Kofler case, this was another Mauthausen trial case, in which they all got two of the confused, you know, mixed up. I mean, for example, they may have, I remember that one of them was witness number two, and the other one was witness number six, and they had the two confused. And one, one, and one of them was asked, he said, how can you be so sure that this man is, you know, uh, uh, he called him Whittingen. I can't remember his name. It's Whittingen, he called him. But uh, I can't really remember that name offhand. It just doesn't come to it. He called him Whittingen. He says, how can you be sure that the man you're identifying, you know, that you're making a proper identification? He said, because I have an excellent memory. He said, and I would remember him even if I saw him after 30 years. And he just, you know, finished actually incorrectly identifying him. They gave the improper man, they attested to him actually the uh, duties and functions of the man you know, they accused him or they confused him with. Uh, another one, yet still, you know, Feldstein said he could remember this after 30 years. Jacob Steinberg was the one who was called to attention by the court and brought up before the court and criticized for having uh, been so nasty and testy in the court. And another one still, Andor Fried, who had been testifying that he had recognized this accused at a distance of about a block and a half shooting prisoners. A city block and a half, he, you know, recognized him at such a distance. He, uh, he you, then uh, nobody discounted this the testimony as a matter of fact. I mean, it was fully accepted by the court. But Andor Freed, when he was walking in the hall outside the court, said that he was called back on to testify again, and he said that this one of the accused, Gustav Petrat, who was eventually hanged, uh, said that he had called him a Jewish Schwein, which means, you know, a, a Jewish pig. And, uh, but I mean, this was all he testified to the second time. And yet this poor man, Gustav Petrat, was finally hanged. I saw a photograph of him standing on the gallows at Landsberg Lake, where he was in prison. His arms and his legs were already bound. He couldn't move, and there was a placard, you know, in front of him, actually, which I thought was extremely distasteful. I mean, apart from the fact that he was hanged, I mean, the, the placard giving his name at the date of the hanging, which was, I guess, for identification purposes, but I still thought it was really quite bad. Another aspect of the files, which I never did, or the trials, which I never did really like, was a finding which the prosecutors tried, you know, they uh, tried to institute in every one of the concentration camp cases, and this was a ruling of common cause or uh, a common design which would have stated, or in fact not would have, it did state that you know the trials, the, uh, the crimes committed in that concentration camp were so horrible that everybody in the concentration camp must have known about them and they didn't do anything to stop them. So as a result, anybody who worked at that concentration camp or who had any position of authority in that concentration camp was also guilty of that crime, even though he might never have been present or actually might never have known that it had taken place. But I mean, you know, this was the ruling.
and I know they had a ruling like that in the Mauthausen case, and they tried it in various other courts, but I think they were fairly successful with it in the concentration camp cases. In fact, one of the review authorities kept referring to this ruling of common design and indicated that these three couples, the Spanish couples particularly, had been guilty of all the crimes alleged to them because they had been at Camp Mauthausen. I found this a very sad testimonial uh, to the uh, justice, certainly the justice of the American courts, and these were American courts we had there. Incidentally, the trials were conducted according to military court, uh, court marshals, courts martial, and uh, they were you know, conducted really by the army and according with the manuscripts, the uh, uh, annual. But uh, they were also conducted according to rulings which had been made expressly for the war crimes trials, some of which had been made and formulated well after the war was over, some of them in London, some in Washington, D.C., which I think is also against Jewish law I mean, when we try to discuss law and uh, the concentration camp cases. But among those affected by the, uh, this common cause effect, as I've just indicated, were a lot of the capos. The capos, I guess you all probably all know, maybe I should explain anyway, but the capos were prisoners in the concentration camps who were promoted to positions of authority within the camp. They were still prisoners, but they had a slightly better position because they helped the SS run the camps. Without the capos, the SS could never have managed that many prisoners, as a matter of fact, and the capos at times were also uh, you know, on trial. The case was very well because they, you know, felt if they'd had, for example, say the Mauthausen case, they had a apparent Mauthausen, you know, with also this common effect or common design ruling. They knew that everybody would be found guilty, and they felt that, that would carry them through. As a result, some of the cases were not well prepared, and the witnesses also were not well prepared. I mean, they had a lot of confusion, a lot of, you know, changes. At one point, one witness, for example, incident, I was reminded of this yesterday when Mr. Leuchter gave his report about Mauthaus not having a, con a gas chamber. One of the witnesses testified that one of the Spanish accused who had been a barber at the camp, a barber, at the camp had uh, been present when a lot of Jewish prisoners were brought into the camp. And he had st stood there and placed, you know, decided who was going to go where. And he had put a Z. This was his pre-trial statement. He would put a Z on the back of each one of these prisoners. And uh, when he got into court and he testified, he said that the prisoner had put a K on the back of each one of these prisoners. When he was asked why the difference, of course, not only the difference in the letter, but also the difference in the number. He said there had been five or six hundred arrived and 180 of them had had K put on their backs. He was asked by the difference. He said, well, he said, I was confused at first. He said, I thought it was a Z. He said, but then when I discussed this with my friends, they told me it couldn't have been a Z. It must have been a K. He said, and I guess they were right. And that was, you know, the end of that, too, as a matter of fact. I mean, that was also accepted the testimony. And the man was a barber. I mean, he wasn't a medical man. He couldn't have determined, you know, whether the man was ill or, you know, what the problems were, if there were problems with the uh, prisoners was coming in. Uh, and uh, this man, of course, was also sentenced. Gonzalez himself was you know, sentenced to hang, and he subsequently did hang, although there was a reprieve, actually, you know, asked in his case.